This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. Hello and welcome to American Muslim Project. I'm Assad Butt. American Muslim Project is a podcast where we share the contributions Muslims are making to American life. In each episode, we elevate unique Muslim voices that are shaping this American experience. My guest today is Dr. Muhammad Raza, an infectious disease specialist in Northeast Florida. On a daily basis, he usually treats patients living with HIV or hepatitis C, but in the past year, Dr. Raza, or Dr. Mo as he's known to his patients, has been a regional expert on COVID-19, making over 100 appearances on various news outlets to spread information about coronavirus infection and prevention. Early on in the pandemic, Dr. Raza and other colleagues developed an app called COVID IQ that tracked symptoms and helped to identify hotspots before anyone else knew. Dr. Raza joined American Muslim Project to share what it was like to be on the front lines of battling coronavirus. I asked him when he first crossed paths with the disease. I, it came into my our path back probably January of 2020, and, and we saw it happening in China, and, and we're looking at the rate of transmission. And in the back of my mind, I kept thinking this could be a pandemic as time goes on, uh, given how transmissible it was. You were already thinking that at that time. There's a feeling that I had at that point. And then we traveled uh, out of the country, actually went to Mexico in February. uh, And and that's when you saw everything kind of rolling down and just seeing this virus being transmitted across different parts of the world. We saw it in Italy at that time. And then you can tell that this is a quite transmissible infection. And that's when I kind of got a glimpse of an idea of it and and, and thinking that this is going to be highly contagious and it it can infect and affect us in the United States as well. At at some point you became an educator within your community um, regarding COVID and coronavirus. Can you tell me about that transition? And and was that hard uh, to get the word out? It actually serendipitously happened. My younger brother uh, is a tech person, lives in Silicon Valley, has started up a couple of companies now. His friend reached out to me, uh, a, a good friend of mine who's who works at Google, uh, and he was planning to come up with an app that would help businesses say, I'm safe, I don't have COVID, we don't have COVID, so allow businesses to continue to remain in business. So he reached out to me, his name is Nahid, and fantastic. So we started we started coming together. It was, it was funny. And then one of our other friends, who's a psychologist, um, we all, all three of us kind of came together. And I, I kind of recommended from an infectious disease perspective, it's not a good idea to let people know you don't have COVID just because no one has infection. Because 
of the asymptomatic transmission that we're seeing in China. And that really wasn't all that known at that point, March, April. So kind of steered them away from that. And we decided to come up with something different called COVID IQ, which at this point, it's not ongoing, but it did really show us. It was an app that we came up with, um, telephone-based, so you could access it through anywhere, uh, through a flip phone, a smartphone, whatever it is. And you could text if you're having any symptoms, or even no symptoms. So you just log in and say, how are you doing today? So we'd follow up with people every other day to check how they were doing on text system. So that really gave us a good idea since we have we had several thousand people throughout the Northeast Florida area. When we saw rates of symptoms start going up, uh, that coincided with several weeks after a lot of business were opened up in Northeast Florida and Florida State. And we that's what initially led me into educating our local public about COVID. And so it was pretty amazing to be put in that sense into the limelight to of, of the local media. And, and the fact that I was coming up with information that was research-based and driven through research as an infectious disease doctor. This is what I do. I treat viruses. So I had a lot more information and, and legitimate credibility. And credibility and, and that resonated with a lot of people across the media. Yeah, so. you, you were through COVID IQ, you were able to identify hotspots um, before and and tell officials that the, you know, these are potential hotspots that are exactly, exactly uh, two to three weeks beforehand, because wow. the reality was the testing took at that time, two to three weeks before we got right. the results back, whereas we could pick up symptoms. And even though a lot of people are asymptomatic, if you saw a spike in symptoms, you could tell, hey, this zip code, we're seeing a huge outbreak we really should address and provide further testing, provide further assistance. And that was our goal when we started up. It was, you know, it was four of us that had turned into 20 of us and people were all volunteering across the country, which across the world, actually, we had we had one of our uh, computer scientists working from, I think, Tokyo. And so wow. we were all talking online on a weekly basis or on every other day basis. And, and we realized that it's all politics, the sad part, because we offer yeah. this for free to every health official across the country. Uh, you know, the other uh, physician that was on the group, we, we called every health official, state official, and they all said, this is really cool. We'd love to use it, um, but we'll get back to you. And we never heard back really. Wow. So, and then, then we learned it is really how, and it was funny because we talked to health officials in different parts of the country. And, you know, in California, they were like, we don't want people to know what's going on oh, in really? terms of rate of infection because we want everybody to wear a mask and stay safe yeah, because true. and then you go to georgia and they're like we want nothing to do with this we don't want to know what rate of symptoms people are having and so we learned right at the get-go that we're doing this for free we are spending our own money to do this and if the local health officials who we designed this for are not going to use it and utilize it to help the population it's, it's just not feasible for us to continue to fund yeah. it but Was that's it? the reality yeah did, did it make you angry it made us it made us it dis it was discouraging. We were all professionals and we're at high level in our careers and in what we're doing. And we took the time out to do something that would be better for the world to an extent, because we even touched base with uh, Airtel, a Nigerian phone company who are really interested in using this system. But at the end of the day, it came down to money and politics, which was sad. It, it was the it was a reality check for all of us. And, yeah. But the, the reality is we all learn and we learn. I got to interact with some amazing people across the country and across the world that are fantastic people. And so, yeah, I mean, it's just amazing how 
quickly you could put something like that together as well. You know, I yes. think that, um, that to me, that's that's pretty impressive. Yeah, that, that really was. That was pretty amazing to see the tech side of it, the engineering side of it, and we had the infectious disease side of it. And, and there was another ID doctor that joined us. So it was, uh, we actually presented to one of one of the government groups about using our app to track vaccination uh, uptake as well. So and it, especially allowing the minority communities to access it more so. And why is that? Why was that important? Because we're seeing with any disease in this country, we're seeing the minority population are the ones that are most affected and infected. And at the same time, they have the least access to care. Uh, you can see this with HIV AIDS. Yeah, an African-American male that has sex with other men has a 50% chance of contracting HIV in their lifetime wow. in the United States. 50%, yeah. one in two. Mind-blowing, right? You might, think that's... I mean that's yeah. that, you think that's somewhere in in Africa you'd see a number like that, but it's one in two African American male or that like has in sex the with 1980s other men. Exactly, to the, yeah, exactly. It still is happening today. Um, so things of that nature that we want to get this information out, uh, we want to be able to provide education information. It's not the fact that they're predisposed to it; it's just the fact that they don't have access to proper knowledge and proper information. And we see it in our culture too. You know, in, in the Muslim world, it's hear no evil, see no evil type yeah. of attitude. So people are gay and it doesn't matter what your religion is. It's, it's just the reality. It's not a choice by any means. So when you don't want to talk about it or even bring it up as, as a part of a conversation, you're shutting out and making a lot of people in your society vulnerable to other things that you know they could get assistance for and get care for. Yeah, no, no doubt. I'm, I'm interested. How do you rate the government's response to, to COVID? If you had to give it a, a letter grade, <laughs> you know, now, now yeah. I give it like an A minus. Oh, um, that's interesting. Compared to compared to what was going on for the per first year, it really, really was administration based. Uh, initially, it was it's going to go away. Oh, we're gonna. It was hear no evil, see no evil type of attitude, and, and but now it's just a lot better. And what we're seeing in India could be us if we hadn't gotten our vaccination rates up to that 60% at this yeah. point, at least one one shot. Because right now what we're seeing India in that part of the world is because they only have 2 to 3% of their population vaccinated. Our yeah. vaccines work. Uh, and that's the, that's the sad part. A lot of lives are being lost and were lost unnecessarily yeah. because of the lack of initiative that was initially not there. How, well, how much of your public outreach is trying to share that va these vaccinations work, you know, like what, what is it? How much are you trying to educate people that are otherwise saying, I don't want a vaccine? Yeah. So on a day to day basis, I do talk to all my patients about getting vaccinated. And it's, it's pretty amazing too, that even though I'm, you know, my name is Mohammed bin Reza. Uh, my, I've known patients now for four or five years that I've taken care of. And the initial conversation is like, they have satellites and they have microchips in those I'm like, no, no, <laughs> they don't. I promise you, you trust right. me with your health. I promise you. And then three months later, when I talked to them, they're like, Dr. Mo, I got vaccinated. I was like, wow, I was able to get through. And this is one after another, after another, you know, and, and it's not one or two patients, probably 30 or 40 patients. I've been able to just switch from total conspiracy theory to, you know what? I got vaccinated after I talked to you, which is pretty mind blowing and amazing that, that, that we can have that effect. Yeah, it seems like it. It's gone from this kind of mass uh, media kind of push now to this kind of hand-to-hand -hand combat with you talking directly to your patients. And yes. seems like 
This is and, where it's kind of bound to. Yeah. And, and a lot of it has also been, I've done probably over a hundred news interviews in the last year, year and a half now. So my, the, the face has become familiar, uh, you know, and I'm excited that the local news media has taken that in and all three news stations have reached out to me for information on COVID and reliable source on how to prevent how it's transmitted. So back starting in March and April of last year, I was on every other day or, you know, talking about masks and talking about these things. And I'm excited that in Northeast Florida, they would allow me to speak up and, and talk given my credibility, given my experience. So it was really neat to see that. And more recently, I've been doing kind of similar type of talks, but more so on a preventative level, more so on, you know, what we're seeing in first in the data for during pregnancy, how effective are these vaccines? And we're seeing they, they are quite effective and they're not leading to those genetic abnormalities or embryo abnormalities that, that people are scared of. And the other really important part that I have to tell everyone, this is science. We're really seeing science at first hand. And I, and I can tell you that we don't know what's going to happen in five or 10 years. But the reality is if you're going to have some sort of reaction, it really happens in the first six weeks after you receive a vaccine. So with that in mind and knowing how deadly this virus is, everything is a risk benefit ratio. It's the same thing in medicine, you know? So is it likely that you might have some sort of a reaction? Yes, most likely you're going to, but is it also likely that you can die from a deadly virus and this would give you a 94-95% protection? Yes. So you really have to base it on the risk-benefit ratio any anytime we decide to do anything with our bodies. For sure. I, I, you are in, in Florida. What city are you in? I forgot. In Jacksonville, Florida. Or okay. Jacksonville, St. John's, around that area. Yeah. You're, so yeah, you're in Jacksonville, Florida. To me, you know, I, I live in the, in the Northwest up in Portland. Um, to me, Florida is like the wild, wild west when it comes to <laughs> the vaccine and to coronavirus. And I don't know what is on the ground. What is your reality? The reality what is has been, what it has been your reality over the last year. Yeah, the reality is it's really changed starkly over the past year and a half. And I think it really has a lot to do with the administration that was in the office initially. We saw a real difference as the administration changed, more people were seeing locally wearing masks and doing the things that are recommended. Um, but initially it was um, it was a lot of a lot of pushback. And as a physician, as a public health person, we're not saying to close any businesses down because I joined a group of physicians actually called uh, Doctors Fighting COVID um, earlier along through this as well. And our sentiment was we don't want to close businesses down. We just want to model what is right. That's wearing a mask and trying to keep some social distance as much as you can, but keeping that mask on at all times when you're indoors, especially. So we started preaching that back in July of last year, and we had a thousand five hundred doctors sign on to a letter requesting that along with limiting indoor events in indoor crowd sizes. And we sent that to our governor uh, and to our state representative with no reply and no response. And, and so, but we have been trying all along. And in our minds, it's the public health that's important. We could care less about politics because we're clinicians, we're physicians. We vowed to take care of patients' lives. And if wearing a mask, if us talking change one person's mind, that's worth it to us. So we took that risk back in July of last year because we spoke up and I'm glad we did because it resonated because they had me and other providers go back on to their stations to talk about the truth, how this virus is transmitted. It's not just going to go away. We really need to take those precautions, get vaccinated when when it's available and, and try to avoid 
mingling in large crowds, especially indoors. So that's great. I wonder if you could kind of share with us from your perspective, what does the future hold in regards to coronavirus for the population? You know, I've heard things like we all have to get boosters at some point. Well, might, that might have to be on a regular basis. Um, there might be other variants that come year after year. What do you share with people about the future of coronavirus and COVID-19? So from an infectious disease perspective, this is a very contagious virus. So if you look at viruses and how contagious they are. This is, you know, right up there is one of the most contagious viruses we're seeing. And so anytime a virus is allowed to spread between person to person, the virus can mutate because we are where the virus mutates human beings. It can't mutate on a surface. So the more it's spread, the more mutations and the more variants we're going to see. So with that said, as time goes on, we may see different variants of this or different variants that our vaccines may not be as effective. So with that fact, it may be that we need booster shots as time goes on. And the other important part is we don't know how long these vaccines will provide protection. Mm. So we know it's up to six months right now with the Pfizer vaccine and likely the same thing with Moderna, but we really don't know how long it's going to provide protection. So as time goes on, we may need that booster shot. But the other important part is um, the way I describe kind of these vaccines and how they work is we're giving your body when you get vaccinated almost a recipe on how to make those spike proteins that sit on the viral particle, right? So that spike protein is almost showing you a mugshot of that virus. So if you see this virus, this colored virus attack before it attacks your body. But what happens with the variants is that color changes. Instead of it being white, now it's brown or green or yellow. So the variance changes. So our vaccines that we have had are just, they don't recognize it. That mugshot, they don't recognize it. So it may be with these boosters, they can add these different variances as well. So I think as time goes on, we will need that booster shot once we figure out how long these vaccines are effective. And if we do see large variances form across the world, we could include that in that booster shot for Peter. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Dr. Raza shares why he decided to become a doctor. This is American Muslim Project. Welcome back to American Muslim Project. My guest today is Dr. Muhammad Raza. Dr. Raza is an infectious disease specialist who has spent the last year or so spreading information about coronavirus infection and prevention across Florida. I asked him if, as a Muslim physician and a public figure, if he ever encountered any negative repercussions. So, so just to say, I'm, I'm not religious. I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. Uh, so I have not seen that firsthand. I have seen it with um, with patients that are right from the get-go had racist sentiments. Uh, I have experienced that. And um, I actually experienced it more so when uh, when tr- when the previous administration came into office, more so. Uh, it really five was years ago. Five years ago, yes. Uh, you know, I'm standing in... Uh, and I remember this clearly. Uh, I was getting donuts for my staff in one of our Daytona clinics, and I'm standing in line. You know, this was before masks, anything. You know, standing in line in my scrubs, and this and Trump had just come into the office the day before, and trying to buy donuts for my staff. I'm not doing anything bad, but you know, person in front of me, you know, are like, "Go back to your country. What are you doing here?" And then, you know, and I'm just like, you know what? I'm just going to ignore you. There's there's no reason to even engage in this. Luckily, they weren't physically um, approaching me and other people said, ah, 
keep it down, you know, and so we moved on. But that was, that's one time I experienced it. And, and to me, I'm as American as anybody else here. So, yeah. you know, even though I was brought, I'm, I'm, was born in a different country, I'm as American as anybody else here uh, is the reality. So, yeah. and the sad part is it's like, I probably took care of your mother or your aunt or your brother in the hospital <laughs> and, right. and kept them healthy and alive. But I need to go back to my country since I came here when I was eight years old. It just did, makes no sense to me. Yeah. Did, did it get worse? It did not. It did okay. not. I, and, and that's something we've had in the back of our mind, knowing that we have young children. Um, my wife is from here. She's, she's white. She's American. She's from Florida. So we have a mixed marriage, which we, which we love, and our children are mixed. And, and so we love it. We get to kind of rejoice in both of our cultures and our religions and yeah. celebrate Christmas. We celebrate you know, all of it, uh, Eid. So it's fantastic. So that was the one thing that we were a bit scared of, uh, knowing that our children are, could could get targeted for something like this. Our children are young; they're two, four, and six. So, but we haven't experienced that, which has been fantastic. If anything, we've gotten a lot more. Um, thank you for speaking up. Thank you for you know getting the truth out there, which is which has been a fantastic experience. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, I'm interested. I, I want to go back to when did you come over to the states? You were born in, in Bangladesh. When did you when did you come here? And, yeah, and... I, I came here when I was uh, nine years old, so uh, around the early '90s. And you grew so, up in the Boston area? I did, yes. Yeah. What was that like for you? It was uh, initially, it's like any child, you know, any young child, when you don't speak the language, when you don't understand the culture, it was it was difficult initially. Um, we all, we're also quite, quite poor. I uh, grew up very poor, and I remember getting my first bike from the trash and, you know, having that pink bike, and <laughs> it's the bike that we could find. And it, it's so, I'm humbled, and I, and I realized that, having the luxuries that I have now, I don't take it for granted because, you know, we have to get futons from the trash to sleep on. That's just the reality for a lot of people in this world and in this country still. So, but the fact that, you know, we came from there and, uh, and the thing that really jarred us as our little family was the fact that a couple of months after we arrived, my dad, who was the was kind of the breadwinner in our family was hit by a drunk driver. And oh, so wow. he was hit and he almost lost his entire leg and almost lost his life. He had to undergo 17 reconstructive surgeries to keep his leg. So we went from, you know, he was the breadwinner and uh, I barely spoke English and my mother had to start working in a factory. My brother was 16 and started working to, as a bagger and a cashier. And I started delivering papers and delivering flowers, uh, whatever money I had half of that went, it was, I think, $20 a week and $10 of it would, would go into the grocery shopping and whatever we could do. And that's, so we've come from there. And in this country, we were able to go from that to becoming physicians, pharmacists, and lawyers. My brother's a pharmacist, my niece, my nephew are physicians and lawyers, and I'm a physician. So the fact that we can do this in, in the United States of America just tells me that this is this is the best country on earth. It, it is. And I don't want to continue to make it the best country on earth. And I, I don't, think I could have done that if that was the same circumstance in, in Bangladesh or let alone in, in other parts of the world. So this is our country and we're as American, the fabric of America, we are a part of it and, and we're here to stay. This is, yeah. is the reality. What what was the reason that the family came to America? So what happens in different parts of the world, as you know, when the 
different parties come into power, uh, other parties are kind of scapegoated in there. Uh, I think it was a political asylum that my father received that allowed him to Perfection. initially come here to this country. And, and then he was able to bring us over after five, six years. So growing up for the first six years of my life, I really wasn't able to see my dad. And so that um, was really amazing. I mean, he went from being a person of high class uh, in our society to being homeless when he arrived here, right? living wow. on the streets, um, you know, having to drive a taxi to, to survive. And then he did what he did, what he could do to bring the rest of the family over. Yeah. So, yeah. and you, you mentioned earlier that he, he passed away young. He did. Um, just like a lot of people in our part of the world, uh, diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia <laughs> was not well controlled. And, and so he, he really didn't take medications. He didn't know. Uh, it, it, it's funny. So he, he went back to Bangladesh to rebuild a property, a, a plot of land that we had. If you don't build it, you, people will come and just sit on it and it, it's lost. So he started to rebuild that property and, and he suffered a stroke there when he was there. And he was, he was quite one young in his fifties. And so that's when I was 17 or I was 18 at that time. I traveled back to Bangladesh with my older brother and we just saw the abject poverty that was there. And, and I hadn't experienced that since I was eight, nine years old. So sure. just seeing that, I mean, w after traveling for 48 hours and seeing my father and in, in literally it looked like an apartment complex laying there um, covered in his own feces and just they're using the same suction that they were using on the person next to him to suction out the mouth. N same needles were being reused and it just, it was mind blowing to me. I was 18 years old, but I'd never seen anything like this. It's just, yeah. a, it was a different world. And by the end of that, he was already in a coma at that point for almost a week. They couldn't provide the care they needed. So they would not let anybody else travel outside of the country to get care because my father had a American passport and I had a American passport. And so they allowed me and my father to travel outside of the country. Even my brother who had a green card, they wouldn't let him into different countries. So um, we've, we rented the back of, of four seats of a commercial plane and my father who was in a coma and me, a 18 year old kid, um, took him, uh, wow. I took him to Singapore. Uh, and I literally lived in the ICU waiting area, kind of that area for almost five days. And by the time he arrived and, and it's just the stark difference, you know, there was like an, the ambulance in Bangladesh is a van with a red marker yeah. and two sticks with a stretcher with a cloth in, and that was the stretcher. Mm -hmm. and, and so they didn't have ventilators available to him in Bangladesh if he stopped breathing. So these were all the things that prompted us to get him uh, as quickly as we could out of the country. And, and when he arrived in Singapore, they had an ambulance right at the, right at the entrance and they, they took him in, they had to intubate him right away, meaning putting him on breathing support. But by the time he arrived there, he was uh, now that I know he was in septic shock. He had so much oh, infection yeah. in his body, likely because they're using similar needles. They're using the same apparatus from patient to patient. He was in septic shock and, and he died within you know, several days after that. Oh. So, and being in a foreign country and an 18 or 17 year old kid, I, they just came up to me and said, Hey, usually the loved ones take care of the deceased. So, and I was like, I've been in this country for three, four days. What do I do? Well, luckily I had two or three credit cards as an American. <laughs> Even then <laughs> yeah. I was able to pay off whatever bills were paid for and uh, found a Muslim burying, um, burial ceremony company on, on the phone book. And we were able to, I was able to wash his body as we do in, in Islam and, and, they were kind and I, I felt my father was looking over me the entire time I was there because I was around all these adults that I had never 
seen in my life. They were speaking a different language in a different country. They could have done whatever with me and, and taken the money and moved on, but they were amazing. They, they, they helped me. They, they set up everything and we were able to take my father's body back to Bangladesh and bury him there. So, uh, it's now a that, lot for an 18 year old. It was. And that's when, that's what pushed me into going into medicine. Uh, initially I was, uh, I had walked into uh, undergrad as a business major and I changed it to <laughs> change it to medicine and pre-med and biology. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm, it's sad that that is the reason that, that you had to change, but um, I think yeah. the outcome of, of who you are and what you've, what you've accomplished in your career has been pretty impressive. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's, and I think that's the passion I care with me, uh, take with me as I see patients every day. And I tell them that I, I'm, I'm going to treat you like it as I would any of my own family members. And I'm going to tell you what, uh, what your options are. But at the end of the day, I want you to work with me and see what works best for you. And that's what I can give you is guidance at the end of the day. That's what I've gone into. And it's just really amazing that I, every time I go away for medicine for whatever it is, vacation and stuff or whatever it is, I'll come back. And the fact that I get to just talk to people and give them guidance. And in my feeling is I want to talk to them as they would to anybody else, any of their family member that would be comfortable to speak to. That's really the environment I want to create because I want to hear the good, the bad, and the ugly because then I can make proper medical decisions and help them come with the best solution that will work for them. So, yeah. Amazing. Um, I wonder, you know, this is a question that I ask a lot. Um, do you have a uniquely American Muslim experience that you want to share? I, I, I don't per se. I just, I just remember, well, so you know what, growing up Muslim, I, I guess, I, I guess I do. I mean, it's cause we would always, everybody would celebrate Christmas and I hated the fact that we didn't, we'd just be eating Chinese food or some, something <laughs> of nature, you know? So it was, uh, it, it, you know, and, and I grew up in a, a town that was, uh, that was had a large Jewish population in it. So Hanukkah was something else that was really celebrating our school. And I was like, why isn't, you know, it would be nice to celebrate either uh, something of that nature. So uh, th I think I took away from that. The fact is every religion really says the same basic tenets: just be good to others and take care of others as you would want to be taking care of yourself. Yeah. And we, take all these holidays as a time for us to rejoice with our loved ones, whether it's Christmas, Hanukkah, Eid, Thanksgiving, it's, it's all the same idea and, and the same tenets. So that's what I've taken away from, from, from my Muslim experience. Uh, oh, I, I think the marriage that I have and the life that I've kind of decided to lead, it's more so being respectful of other people, regardless of their religion, of their culture, of their ethnicity and that's what we teach our children that's what my wife teaches our children and that's where we come from of a giving sense and trusting people until they break your trust you you need to trust everyone give everyone a chance is what we've always taught our our kids and and we like to celebrate every holiday <laughs> that's that's the other thing i think we i think you come from a similar type of a background where where we see the coming of different cultures really enhances the the person and, and the people they're around. So yeah. um, that's a great philosophy to live yeah. by and great messages to, to send your children for sure. Um, well, Moraza, thanks so much for joining us on American Muslim Project. I really appreciate you taking the time. Of course. Thank you for having me. That was fantastic. My conversation with Dr. Mohammed Raza was recorded in May of 2021. Check out the show notes for links to everything that we talked about. American Muslim Project is a production of Rafaelion Media. Our show today was produced and edited by Lindsay Gamble, Mark Anato, and me, Asad Butt. Simon Hutchinson did our theme music. We are online at AmericanMuslimProject.com. Yeah.